there's so many times when I stepped on the court and I wasn't the better player, but I won that last point because I knew that the momentum of the match could swing my way if I was just mentally a little bit stronger. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team. To the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch. So what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, it's Carly. Today, my guest is the tennis champion and entrepreneur, Maria Sharapova. She has been ranked the number one player in the world by the Women's Tennis Association and won five Grand Slam titles and an Olympic silver medal, so almost as athletic as me. Maria has also built a career off the court. She is the founder and CEO of Sugarpova, her premium candy line. She is also an investor and strategic advisor for a number of companies. Maria, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you for having me. So we're going to jump in with our standard first question. Skim your resume. Oh, wow. (laughs) Let me start with, I was born in Siberia and you think, wow, how did I end up in California? And the story is really crazy. It's incredibly unique because my, my family was from Belarus and when Chernobyl exploded, they fled to Russia and Siberia happened to be where I was born. At the age of four, I started playing tennis. And at that time, we'd already moved to the south of Russia in Sochi. I loved the game. I loved everything about it. I loved how individual and focus-driven it was. At the age of seven, my parents thought Russia wasn't the place to develop tennis talent, so they moved to the United States. I uh, went there with my father. I spent the first two years without my mom as she couldn't get a visa, and that's really where my tennis dream developed. From the junior days, I became professional at 13 or 14 years old, which is quite crazy to think about. So I was still very much a child. At 17, I won my first Grand Slam in London. I went on to win um, many titles. I had a lot of beautiful moments. I had a lot of tough injuries and uh, very difficult setbacks along the way. In that process, I learned a lot, you know, via my business developments. I learned about really, you know, businesses that I appreciated, companies that I felt really inspired by and their founders, um, the way that they came out with ideas and were able to execute on them. And I learned a lot along the way of, of being a tennis player and spending so many hours in a hotel room. I was curious. I learned a lot. And I guess that's where I kind of developed this uh, a little bit of a business acumen throughout the journey. That was a very good skim, I have to say, one of our best. (laughs) That's a very difficult question to begin with. What's a fun fact about you? What can I Google about you? Oh, I'm incredibly stubborn. You know, I'd say stubborn and and good and then stubborn in in very difficult ways. Like when when we say stubborn, like I was stubborn in my work ethic and I, I wanted something, when I wanted something really bad, I'd really strive for it and do everything I can. But sometimes stubbornness takes you out of something that is better for you. So you don't actually see the other side of things. So that's probably not Googleable. <laughs> so we're going to go back, you know, obviously in your skim, you talked about this, but you were born in Siberia and began to be raised in Russia. And then your family made a huge change when you were about six. Talk to me a little bit about what you remember about that move. You mentioned that you were separated from your mom. Just what what was that environment for you? Like, where did you guys go when you came to the U.S.? Well, my parents were very young when they had me. My mom was just 20 years old, and 
all they knew was that they had this you know little girl next to them and that they just wanted to protect her. So I actually didn't spend, besides being around my grandparents and some other family members, I didn't spend too much time away from my parents. I was constantly under their, their wings and their guidance. And so I'd say the move when I was just six and a half years old, the move to the United States and, and leaving my mother was incredibly challenging for her because that's all she knew for those past six years. For me, it was slightly different because I was this little girl that was packing a suitcase and that was bringing some books and I was going on this journey. And the idea of, of America, it's hard to paint that picture when you're really young. You just, you don't know the difference of America or, or another continent. You just know you're, you're going to be on a plane and you know, you're going to land at this destination. And that for me was Miami, the Miami International Airport, which is full of palm trees and just this exotic location that, you know, I'd never seen. It's hard, I think, for my mom, my mom's perspective. It was a very different experience. How quickly did you and your, I guess, your, your parents realize, you know, it's one thing when a kid picks up a tennis racket or any sport equipment and you're like, oh, good, you like touch the wall. How did they realize that there was something there, that, that you had a gift? I had this focus from a young age that I think set me apart from some of the group activities that I was doing back in Russia. There was a coach in, in Sochi and he, he was a very like technical coach. So he, he taught you things about the grip and how to hit a forehand and a backhand and not so much about anything else, just like the basics, the foundation of what I think a young player really needs at that time. And he noticed that I, I had this ability to just want to improve and not get distracted on other activities and other things. And as a young girl, you know, try to hit the strings with the ball. And if it doesn't go your way, you have a little bit of a tantrum and you move on to something different. And I think what it, you know, what was exciting is I saw little improvements and they kept me coming back for more. And I think that's what they saw because it's really, it's so hard for me to personally see true talent at that age. Like you can see, you know, a burning desire in, in a young child's eyes to want to win or want to keep striving for getting better. But as we all know, there's so many different roads and turns that we can take on this journey. And even if you do see these signs of talent at a young age, it never, it so rarely goes according to plan. Are your parents athletic? It's funny because they're really not. I mean, my, I think like all fathers, they probably think they're somewhat athletic. Like my father trains every day and he cycles and he skis in the winter. And he, he when he goes and, and does that, he's like, I'm going to train. And I was like, what are you, what exactly are we training for? Like, so I think there was this athletic mindset that he had, but, but never on any professional scale. And my mom was, she had a different, um, about her and that it was never really about athletics. It was all cultural and educational. You were pro by age 14 and won Wimbledon by age 17. I remember, you know, we're, you know, close in age. And so at the time you were like, my peers sat a little bit and I was like, oh, like, that's so cool. You know, I didn't really appreciate just how crazy that is. Like you were a kid. <laughs> I know what I was like at 14. I know what I was like at 17. Like, what was that like? What was your personality like, you know, both on the court and at home? How much of a kid were you? My entire upbringing was very untraditional. The entire path of, of 
education and how I study to how I trained and, and played tennis for probably seven days a week for five hours a day. It was very different to what kids were doing and teenagers were doing at that time. And so I realized, I think from a very young age that, you know, there's something that I really loved and here we are in this new country and, you know, I have an opportunity to get better at it every day. I'm at one of the best academies in the world. So I think the path was very different and it, and it set my mind to work differently. Like I was on a mission, you know, I had this fearless mentality that I'm in this individual sport. I'm doing something very different. I love what I do. Some days I win, some days I lose, but I feel like I'm getting better. And I constantly had this fire to keep getting better. But when you get to a stage of Wimbledon and you're only 17, it's still so new and it's still, it seems so far away. And I will say that, I mean, I still look back at that and now it becomes more real with every year that passes by because you can't imagine like what you achieve at that age. It's like all your dreams and all your wishes and all your goals, they come true right there, right then at such a young age when you haven't established what that even means. I feel str more strongly about it and like more proud of it now than I ever did while I was playing. Because while I was playing, I always had this mentality that I want to feel like I haven't won anything yet, that I keep striving to win it as if I don't have anything, that I don't have the financial security, that I don't necessarily have those, those victories and those titles. Because you know, tennis is, is a ritual and it's this annual thing. And you see the same people, you see the same locations. Like, yes, we go to some of the best cities, but what you actually see and what you extract from that is very different to what someone, you know, goes there on a trip to Paris sees. Like we see the courts and we see the hotel. It's all about recovery and it's all about high performance. So I was always on this singular path and I realized that that was quite different and, and that's what made it so special. What was your personality like as a competitor? Were you serious all the time? Did you have a temper? Like, what were you like? When I was young, I would see photographs from different sports, and, but mostly tennis, but like of the championship trophy photographs. So you'd see the winner and you'd see the runner-up. And there was such a contrast in the attitude of, of those two standing at the podium. Like the winner had this huge smile and holding the trophy up. And then the runner up is, you know, usually holding the trophy by the side and, you know, is, is sad because, you know, the loss probably just happened 30 minutes or 15 minutes before that photo is taken. And that contrast and emotion, I was really taken aback by it because it's still such an amazing um, accomplishment to get to that stage of a podium. And I couldn't understand why someone that was in the runner-up stage would have this attitude. So from a young age, I, I don't know why or how, but I said to myself, I don't want people to really see how I felt in the moment. I don't want to give away. Tennis is all about momentum. Like There's so many times when I stepped on the court and I wasn't the better player but I won that last point because I knew that the momentum of the match could swing my way if I was just mentally a little bit stronger. So that's how I approached, you know, the mentality. And like, I, I never wanted to show my opponent what I was feeling or what I was thinking. Now that didn't stop me from pumping my fists and that didn't stop me from, you know, being a little bratty and looking over to my team and being like, oh, it's your fault, not mine. <laughs> there are definitely a lot of those moments where I showed my attitude. But most of the time, like, no matter if I was down match point or up a match point, I don't think many of my opponents could tell how I felt. One of the things that I love talking to athletes that we've been lucky enough to have on this show is when you are, you know, 
successful in business, there's a risk that you can become complacent and that you're like, you know, I know how to do this and, you know, I'm at the top. But when you're an athlete, like you have to show up on the court, like you can, you can only be complacent, in, you know, and talk, but like you actually have to show up and do the thing. How did you avoid falling into a complacency trap when you were having all this success? And how did you find the motivation to like keep pushing yourself as hard as you did pre Grand Slam wins and then post five Grand Slam wins? I think there was a little bit of luck in that because I found a career in which I felt really comfortable and comfortable in, in showing my vulnerabilities, like not constantly showing perfection because over the time of the two hours that I spend on, on a center court of any stage anywhere around the world, I'm in front of thousands of people, not just at the stadium, but through the camera and on everyone's television that's watching that match. And I never thought that my appearance or the sense of I'm losing made me uncomfortable. For some reason, the career of being an athlete and, and being a tennis player actually made me comfortable being, you know, not at my best at times, not looking my best and sweating. And I found comfort in that, right? Because it's very difficult. I meet so many people and, you know, even some of my family that's, that's younger and my cousins. And, you know, they're in the stage where they're trying to find the things that that excite them, that motivate them, that give them this feeling when they wake up that they either want to help elevate this company or they want to help elevate themselves by being diligent and smart in, in their schooling. And I was able to find that from a young age. And that's why I say I was a little bit lucky because that's not something that you learn. I think that's something that I gained along the way. We talk a lot on the show about anxiety and how successful people deal with it mask it, where it shows up for them. Where did it show up for you as an athlete? Did it show up for you? That's a great question. I think pressure and anxiety are, are quite different. Pressure is, was this feeling that I, I mean, I, I came across many times and I found a lot of value in that because I feel that that's where I really tested myself. Because when you're, you know, in the backcourts and training in front of your team, there's not a lot on the line but so much of, of being an athlete was not, not showing how great you are in court 21. It was showing how great you were on, on center court and then doing it for 12 months out of the year. There's all the infamous headlines about the competition between you and Serena and how many times you played each other. Like, did you have anxiety walking onto those, that court that day? No, I loved, like when I would play a night match, usually the, that would be like during the U.S. Open, for example, and I'd have this routine if I was, if I was a night match at the U.S. Open, I'd do a little warm up in my hotel gym in the morning and then I'd have lunch in my hotel room and then I'd, I'd take like a 45 minute nap. And I don't remember one nap that I didn't wake up from before a match and just said to myself, like, let's go. Like it's time, it's time to go. And I love being at that stage because why else would you be training all those hours? Why else would you wake up so early in the morning and beat yourself up over, you know, a mistake in the net? Like it is to look forward to those big stages. And yes, did I feel butterflies, you know, going out onto a Grand Slam final and actually more so before, you know, a tournament even begins because that's, you, you know, you think you're confident, you think you're practicing well, but then you get to a first round match and you're like, wow, this is incredibly disappointing. <laughs> 
In 2016, you announced that you failed a drug test because of a medication you were taking and you were banned from tennis for 15 months. In that moment, like what was going through your mind? What was that like for you? It was incredibly difficult realizing that a sport that I'd played since I was four years old was taken away from me for that amount of time. Like every single morning, even if I was on vacation, on my break, like I knew in a few weeks time, I would be competing somewhere around the world. And so to wake up for that period of time and to go through arbitration and, and to go through not practicing and then not like keeping my body in that like tone shape and that mindset. It's interesting because as an athlete, it's so automatic and, and we feel like we're, we're at the top of our game all the time, but it's so difficult to maintain that. And it's so easy to lose that. And even if it's just a week, even if it's two weeks, like it takes the same amount of time to get that back. So the toughest part was, you know, I, I had shoulder surgery by that time. I had another shoulder injury by that time. So I was already, I knew that I was closer to the end of my career than to the beginning. And I never thought that I'd be playing past 30 years old. So I was in my mind trying to find the things like those moments that would keep me going, right? That would keep my body going. And that was the toughest part was finding those little moments of, of inspiration. Everyone has career setbacks. Yours happen to be more public than most people. I think what's interesting is that, you know, you just said you never envisioned playing past 30. Like most people don't have a sort of timeline around their career in the same way. Psychologically, how did you think about what would happen after that age marker? I kind of set that that benchmark for age when I was maybe in my early 20s. And there are a few reasons for that. You know, my mom had me when she was very young and I grew to have an incredibly strong relationship with her. And we're, you know, we're best friends. I'm, I'm an only child. And so I thought that, you know, by that time, I mean, 10 years too late already, I'd have a child. <laughs> so that was definitely on my mind because I wanted to carry that sense of family with me. And I really wanted that for myself. And the other part was that with every single year, I felt and I realized how difficult it is to maintain your body to constantly be healthy. When you're a teenager, you know, you, you play a match, you get a little sore in eight to 10 hours, you're done with it. That is very different <laughs> to when you're 30 and above. And, you know, a little injury that starts with a little injury doesn't go away as it doesn't heal as fast, right? So you start spending more time on your body than you're used to because prior to that, you're used to repetition and you're used to training and it's second nature. You don't think about it. And I spent more time on my body in the last five years of my career than I spent training and getting better. So the idea of just arriving on the court with a healthy body was a win. I want to talk about money. We talk about money a lot on this show and like the relationship with money and kind of all of our professional lives. When were you aware that like you were not only becoming financially independent, but like very successful? Like at what age did that kind of set in for you? I remember the moment when I won Wimbledon and it was the first moment I felt like that money and that success got me something was we get on the plane with my manager to New York and to do the press tour after I won Wimbledon in, in New York City. And 
we get on the flight and we had an economy ticket and <laughs> and we get on and the pilots welcomed me and they said, we've upgraded you. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've made it. <laughs> like that was a very big deal. And the second moment when I realized that this was really cool was I had spent many years going to Los Angeles. We were based in Florida. That's where I spent my years training. And we were going to, to LA to see this coach. We would stay at this I, I don't even know. It was like the Holiday Inn Express. We stayed there because it had a little kitchen and it had a little living room so my, my parents and I could stay there. We had our own space. And after I won Wimbledon on the next trip to Los Angeles, my agent, he, he booked this hotel and it was in Hermosa Beach and it was very close to the beach. Like you could hear the waves. And I get in this living, in, in the bedroom of this hotel room and I was like, wow, this is the biggest upgrade I've ever felt. And then I went to the bathroom and there's this yellow rubber duck. And I remember calling him and saying, I mean, I made it. <laughs> I have a yellow rubber duck on my bathtub. <laughs> All of that hard work was for the duck. So those are like the little, you know, youthful teenager moments of where I felt, okay, like success has brought me a sense of wealth that gave me these little upgrades in life. But in terms of like financial security, I'd say, I don't know. I never, you know, I always think that you have to work hard for what you earn and nothing, especially in America, nothing comes for free. We all know that like there's always something. And if it does come for free, you know, you, you never feel right about it. So I always had the sense that you have to work for your money. And I knew that with accomplishments and with victories and, and the more you win and the higher you move in the ranking, the more championships and trophies you have, the more money you'll have in the account. I never thought about it too much, but I knew that they both correlated to one another. You have spoken about and are known to have a business acumen. A lot of that, I assume, happens by organically sort of seeing what's going on around you. And as you became more successful, you also become a brand and a business. But how did you figure out who to trust, who to guide you? That's a great question. I really trusted my parents. And throughout the entire journey, I was so lucky that they made decisions that were about me and not about them, because I think that's very easy to do when you're a parent of, a, of an athlete that's, that has achieved significance at a very young age. It's very easy to take all the credit, take all the money at the same time and do what they want around that. Um, and they, I was very comfortable in, in them making those decisions for me. I also had an agent and the same agent I have today from the age of 11, which in, in any industry is very difficult to have because of those ups and downs, because you, you know, you, you need different things. Like a lot of people need different things at different stages in their career. But I, I do think it's important that even though he wasn't always the best in certain areas and different times of my career, it was more important for me to know that someone had my back and someone would make the right decisions and tell me the truth and be honest and real, because that's a huge part. Um, it's a big problem in, in any industry, you know, is not getting to the point, not getting to what truly matters. And, and when it comes to money, which is a fairly touchy subject for most, it's very important to have those people you trust. So my parents and my, my manager at the time were the ones, you know, that made those decisions. And they were also not afraid to say, why don't you attend that meeting with us when we are discussing your Nike contract, when we are discussing the partners that you're going to be in business with for the next eight to 10 years, potentially. 
And so I did. And although, you know, I felt very small in those meetings and I was, and I wasn't the smartest in the room by any means, but that's where I learned a lot, you know, about business. That's where I learned about marketing. That's where I gained, um, you know, knowledge of why something works and why it doesn't. What did you pick up on in negotiation? What is the top tip that you've learned about negotiating that our listeners should follow? I think you learn a lot about people through the negotiation stage, and it's an important process to go through, as uncomfortable as it is. I think a lot of people's emotions and weaknesses come out during that phase. And when I was thinking of my team members, when I was hiring coaches or trainers, it wasn't just about the the specific specialty that they had that I was hiring for. It was the people that I would feel comfortable losing with, because in my sport, I lost more than I'd won. And in these negotiation phases, I feel like the true identity of people comes out. And it's a really good test of how they will deal with your feedback, with your ideas before you really get into business with them. And I think that's very important because those moments will come, you know, constantly. You founded Sugar Pova in 2012, which by the way is, I think, my favorite name. It's a very silly name. I also really like candy, so it works. What are you like as a businesswoman in comparison to you as an athlete? I would say I, I'm still learning through business. I, I'm 33 years old, and although I've had incredible experiences, what excites me about the calls that I take and the meetings that I have is that I don't know everything and that I try to be the sponge, this curiosity sponge that, that also has a point of view. I do want my point of view to have presence and to be strong, but I... I always leave a meeting and when I feel like I've learned more, more than I was able to contribute is when I really get excited about my work because I feel that that spreads to all other aspects of my career. With Sugar Pova, I launched this business because I was young and I, and I had these amazing experiences with big brands. But at the end of the day with all the big brands, I was a small part of that. I was a small part of the decision-making. I would be a face of the campaign. And, you know, I'd get a paycheck at the end of the year and I wanted more, like I just wanted more control. And I started Sugar Pova knowing that I didn't know the candy and the sweet space, but I, it was a category that I loved. Like I grew up in my grandmother's kitchen. I ate sweets as a reward after a victory or after a really good practice. And I knew that I would have fun along this way of learning through other people. And I also came into a business I think the advantage I had was questioning and presenting ideas that weren't traditional. Like I would be in a room that because I didn't know anything, I challenged the norm. And, and that's sometimes a, a good position to be in. Not all the time, but I, I do think that, that that was a strength of mine. And I really challenged certain ideas and I elevated the way that people thought about a fairly traditional category of sweets. Who are your business mentors? Who are you leaning on to give you advice to help you navigate as you continue to learn how to do this? I had a few. And, you know, this year, this past year had been, you know, significantly different in the way, I think, for all of us in the way that we communicated. I'd say, you know, communication is such an important skill, not just because you're learning something from people, but also the way that you're forming your ideas and your sentences and and how you're presenting yourself. And so I tried over the last six months, even though it wasn't in person, um, but specifically for Sugar Pova, I would contact people in the industry that had incredible experiences from presidents to CEOs. 
And I'd set this goal for myself that maybe every week or every other week, I would ask them for an hour call. And I would just, you know, have a list of questions, whether it was about my business or their experience. And it would be like my, my homework. So there isn't one particular mentor that I have, but I, I definitely love learning from people that have had incredible experiences in their life. What are you not good at in business that you have to work on? I'm not good with the traditional models. Um, in the suites business, there's the, the brokers, there's the distribution. It's a very old model and system that I, it's so complex that I'm still wrapping my brains <laughs> around it. Unless you're a direct-to-consumer business online, like you have to deal with a lot of third parties. And it's a lot of like finding the right balance of time and time distribution with these third parties has been, I'd say, my biggest challenge. Last year, you officially retired from, from tennis. Do you miss it? A couple of things. <laughs> I don't miss most of it. I really miss waking up in the morning and like I had in my closet, I had a, a separate section for my tennis clothes. Like I had the t-shirts I'd wear in practice, the shorts I'd wear in practice, and the tights I had in practice. And every morning, like that was my life. I would wake up and I'd brush my teeth and I'd go into the closet. And for six days out of the week, that is the section of my closet I would go to. As standard as that sounds, when I put on those clothes, that was my costume. Like that was my uniform. And I really missed that. You know, because there's something about being in your uniform that changes, like, changes your feeling and changes your self-esteem and changes the way you think about your day. So that's a change. And I know that sounds small. My mom always used to say, like, dress for the job you want. And so I remember, like, as even an intern, I would get, like, very dressed up. Like, I was, like, the running, running the news <laughs> network. Like, I was going to some very important meeting and I was going to get coffee. And I think it's very similar because that's a mindset. Definitely. And when I was young and I was training in Florida, I used to always train in, like, tennis dresses and tennis skirts. And everyone would be like, what are you? You're not playing a tournament today. You're training. And I was like, but I want to practice. Like, I'm playing a tournament besides just liking the way that they looked. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I wanted to feel exactly like I would compete. So, so I miss that. I mean, the training that I did was phenomenally different to anything that I will ever do again. And the, the will that that takes, the mindset that you have, you know, in order to every single day push yourself to the limit is extraordinary. And when you're pushing yourself to that limit, it is, it's a gift because when you do it from a very young age, you develop the skill to mentally gear yourself up to feel that way. And so at the end of a day, you're, you feel like you've given everything you can physically, like you just gave it all up. You know, you left everything on the court, you left everything on the track. And I don't think I'd ever <laughs> feel that again, because no matter how I'm training right now, like I'm, I'm sitting in the basement right now, and this is where I do my workouts and no matter what I do, it's not the same. Well, it's like I can understand kind of pushing yourself mentally every day to get something off the ground, but I, I truly cannot imagine the physical element to it. So it's very awe-inspiring. We're going to move to our lightning round. Are you ready? Oh. Morning person or night owl? Morning person all the way. What time do you wake up? Like six. Oof. Last TV show you streamed or binge-watched? I am on the second season of The Crown. And I just finished The Queen's Gambit. Worst professional mistake you've made in anything in your career? I've hired a few wrong people. 
Last time you negotiated for yourself? Yesterday. Who is a tennis player today, a female tennis player, that you're most excited by? Osaka. Me too. You've been investing a lot. And so of the ones that you can share, what company are you most excited by? There were a couple that you know had brilliant missions um, in a really tough year, which were, one was Pangaea. Their mission of creating sustainable fabrics and doing that for years prior to launching, I think just really helped elevate their their entire ecosystem and got them ready for, for the year and the challenges that were presented. And then Bala, that was a company, um, it was a wrist and ankle weights that I actually uh, invested in during my appearance on Shark Tank, which was <laughs> its own really incredible experience. But I was so fortunate enough to meet the founders um, of Bala on that show. And they were brilliant as presenters. They're brilliant as founders. Did you have a pre-game ritual? It was so boring. I would always, um, right after I do my warm up, I would always get in my tennis dress because I wanted to feel like I wanted to make sure that I was comfortable in, with every seam and the length and the material. And even though I've already tried it on, I just, I wanted to spend a good hour or two in it. Okay. Last question. Where do you keep your trophies? They're not displayed anywhere. <laughs> it's everyone that, that comes over to my house, you know, spends like the first 30 minutes, like, Oh, looking at some art pieces and, you know, making themselves or me making them, them a cocktail or a glass of wine. And then 30 minutes into it, they're like, what, where are your, don't you play tennis? Because <laughs> there is no evidence of the sport in my home. There are no trophies. There's um, no pictures, no frames. It's all in my mind and all in my heart. And I, I think that's, that's important more than anything else. Very funny. Um, I would be the opposite, but I respect that. <laughs> Maria, congratulations on all the things. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. I'm Nicole Gibbons, and I'm the founder and CEO of Claire. Claire is a modern paint company that makes the process of buying paint for your home so easy. We offer curated colors, peel and stick samples, so it's so easy to find a color you love, and we deliver everything you need straight to your door. Prior to starting Claire, I actually worked in retail for about a decade. And while in that job, I started pursuing my passion for design. I, I set up a blog. I started taking on side hustle design clients. That was all during the recession. And I was really, really passionate about design. So about five years later, I took the leap to build my design business full time, but I never wanted to just be an interior designer. I really wanted to build a brand and help people all over the US create beautiful homes. And I started thinking about physical products and what that could look like. And one thing I recognized was that across the home industry, brands were pretty sleepy. There wasn't a lot of innovation. And through helping all different types of people with designing their homes, um, I realized this pain point around paint shopping. It was a huge frustration for people. Um, the average person who didn't have the opportunity to work with an interior designer would go into a big box home improvement store, staring up at that sea of 3,000 colors on a wall, and were totally overwhelmed. And so I had this light bulb moment that the paint industry really needed a refresh. And so I just immediately envisioned an easier, 
better, more convenient way to buy pain. And, and that was when the idea for Claire was born. Since starting Claire, um, what I am just the most excited and energized about is our customers. You know, they, number one, validated this hypothesis that I had, which was that people would enjoy buying paint online and that, um, and find it a much easier alternative to the traditional paint buying experience. And one of the biggest challenges in running this business, I think has really been people, you know, at the end of the day, people help fuel this, this business and help me realize this vision. So building a team, hiring the right people, I'd say that has been one of the most challenging aspects for me as a first time CEO. You can find us at Claire.com spelled C-L-A-R-E. You can also follow us on Instagram for daily inspiration at Claire Paint. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 